back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, as I'm very uh, lucky to join you each Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern, noon to 3 p.m. Pacific. Uh, This half hour, I am joined by D.W. Gibson, who is a contributor to The Nation and an author of the recently published book, book, excuse me, entitled The Edge Becomes the Center, an Oral History of Gentrification in the 21st Century. Um, And that is what we're going to be talking about, uh, specifically an article that DW wrote for The Nation you can find online. It's entitled America, the Unaffordable. And it's part of the nation's new podcast series, which is entitled There Goes the Neighborhood. It's produced in partnership with WNYC Studios. DW, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I uh, am very uh, involved in reading a lot of uh, what is written at The Nation. I have been for years. I find uh, a lot of the uh, pieces, actually pretty much everything I read is always interesting there. Um, A lot of people are familiar with uh, one of your uh, co-workers, John Nichols from The Nation, who we've had on the show. We've had on uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel. A lot of different issues uh, that are covered. Um, This particular one obviously affects so many people um, across our country. Um, And as the subtitle of your article suggests, um, we have an affordable housing crisis uh, shortage from C to see and i just wanted you to explain to our audience why you wrote that dw uh i wrote that because that is a very accurate uh description of the scope of the housing crisis there according to a urban institute study from just last summer there is not one county in the u.s uh that doesn't have an affordable housing shortage uh, every county in the country is facing this issue, obviously, to varying degrees. So we like to sort of think of housing issues uh, as something that is really intense in an urban area and in developing cities like New York and Oakland and so forth. Uh, but this is something that's really playing out across the country. Especially, I mean, that that's something that obviously jumped off the page when I read it, that no county in America uh, has been deemed to have enough affordable housing to meet the need of its poor renters. So everyone listening, obviously, is affected by this problem. Um, You know, you you wrote about uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York City um, and how he won the election on the strength of his central promise being uh, providing more affordable housing uh, to the citizens of of New York City. Um, How is he trying to make that happen so far? So far, he's trying to do that with a uh, citywide uh, mandatory inclusion plan. And uh, what that means is he wants to mandate that any private developer putting up a new building in New York City uh, set aside some units uh, to be negotiated on a case-by-case basis, uh, but some units uh, that are uh, uh, classified as affordable housing. You know, in the past, New York City has had programs that encouraged developers to include some percentage of affordable housing in their new construction. But uh, for his plan, he's, he's mandating it. In fact, that vote was just taken up earlier this week. The city council approved the citywide plan uh, that mandates that affordable housing uh, be included in all new developments moving forward. Okay, so now that we have that, actually making that happen, um, you wrote about something called AMI um, and why that's important in the conversation about creating more affordable housing. Um, can you break down just in layman's terms, you know, what that is for our audience and why is that important when we go from step one, which is, you know, signing that policy into law, and then step two, having the affordable housing actually created? Sure. Yeah, AMI is essential. Um and it is uh, area median uh, income. 
Uh, that's what it stands for. And the AMI for any geographic re- region is set, uh, or the, rather the geographic re- regions where AMI is determined, is set by the federal government. Uh, so for New York City, you know, we have five boroughs in New York City, but our AMI uh, for the city includes some of the wealthier suburbs, uh, which drives up the, uh, the average income uh, for a family of three in the city uh, to about $77,000. So that's the this, this sort of central hash mark or benchmark that is used when establishing how we define affordability. Um, and it's, it's, it's problematic, as I talk about in the piece, because, uh, you know, there's a need to get much more local uh, in terms of neighborhoods when we talk about what is affordable, because that $77,000 medium income really is just sort of off the charts for some of the neighborhoods that the mayor is zeroing in on for some rezoning plans. Yeah, because one of the examples that you give is going to East New York, for instance, the actual... AMI in East New York was only about 33000 so you're looking at something that's more than twice as much. So what does that actually do? That, that basically means that a developer comes in, they say, okay, this is the law now, so we have to make some affordable housing, and we're going to use this AMI, and then they make a, a quote-unquote affordable housing that the average uh, or excuse me, area median income is basically a family of three saying, okay, we're making $77,000, this housing is great for us, but the people in East New York are looking at it and saying, uh, that's twice as expensive as we can afford, so how the blank is this affordable housing? I mean, is that pretty much right? Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's exactly it. And, I mean, you know, the number $77,000 is from another galaxy for so many people from East New York, um, and that, that is the, the the essential problem because what that means even if you have units that are designated as affordable per that AMI, per $77,000 a year, that inevitably means that the people that are currently living in East New York, and they've lived there for three years or 30 years or 50 years, they're living there now, the, the majority of those people are not going to be able to afford to stay there. And so the people that are going to be coming in, uh, inhabiting these affordable units, are going to be coming from other parts of the city. So it doesn't really help anybody who lives in the neighborhood now, which is the what why people elected exactly. de Blasio, because they wanted more affordable housing where they live. Okay, so that brings me to the question then, if this AMI, which you you know correctly pointed out in your piece, is set by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, um, why why did they use, uh, why is basically, why is AMI being used as the determining factor when it comes to defining affordable housing then? That is the that is the golden question. That is my first question for for the mayor uh, in, in his office coming up with this plan because there is no uh, mandate from the federal government uh, to use that as the determining factor. That that number and that data is provided uh, and tells you something about sort of the broader New York City region. Uh, but the city that totally has it within the city council. Totally has it within its power to establish another measure for a average income for a neighborhood. They could use average income by zip code. Uh, they could use average income by community boards. You know, we have community boards up in the city for each neighborhood. Uh, and all they would have to do is convert that data to data that HUD can understand. 
which wouldn't be difficult for them to do at all. So it, it's it's this um, sort of uh, resistance on the part of the city to, to use another measure. It requires more work on their part, obviously, but it would be work that's well worth it uh, because it would give you a much more accurate gauge about what the people in any given neighborhood, East New York and beyond, what the people in any given neighborhood can afford. Is that kind of one of the arguments that the city council has been making to de Blasio? I, you know, I, I have not heard this come up in uh, the public discourse, and, and it's somewhat mystifying. I mean, I've heard uh, advocates talk about this and, and uh, advocacy groups in different neighborhoods talk about this and, and people who are trying to push the city uh, to be uh, to, to, to look for deeper affordability. And there are some uh, community board members that have talked about this. And I know uh, the council representatives from, uh, from, from Brooklyn that are going to be affected, from the neighborhoods that are going to be affected by the first zoning plan in the East New York area. I have talked to this somewhat, but it has not been on the table as a major uh, change that could be made uh, to the toolbox, as it were, uh, to improve the situation. And I, I think that that's, uh, that's the fundamental mistake we're at right now, that we have lots of goodwill, we have lots a lot of good intentions on the part of the administration, but we don't have this sort of reality check to really get to deeper affordability, which can be accomplished with a different measure of medium income. Now, it, it, I know there were some meetings behind closed doors with the city council and de Blasio. Um, did you, were you saying that's what had been signed earlier this week, the agreement that they made? Is that what that was referring to? No, and that's, I'm glad you asked that because it's a really important distinction. They signed on... Uh, you know, past weekend they came up to an agreement, came up with an agreement, and then voted on it uh, last night, actually, uh, for the citywide mandatory inclusion program. And and the agreement that came to last weekend, essentially uh, trying to pursue deeper affordability, they increased the range of um, of, of incomes that are eligible for affordable housing. So um, uh, before it was a range of, I think it was a, a 30 to 60 percent of AMI, and they, they widened that to be uh, people that are 20 percent of AMI, which is really low income, uh, up to uh, 70 percent. So they increased the range of people that are eligible for affordable housing, which is fundamentally a good thing. But that speaks to the sort of quality of the overall picture. It doesn't speak to the quantity of units that will be made available to the low-income households that are really, really pressed to find housing. And that is the thing that is yet to be determined. And that's going to be determined on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood and even block-by-block, development-by-development case, because in each case, the developer negotiates with the city the exact percentage, which is usually about 25 percent, um, of the units in any given building that will be made affordable and how affordability is defined in each building. That's going to be hammered out in the coming weeks, uh, and that's what we need to keep an eye on. Because one of the things you bring up, you know, basically people to people listening, okay, what does that mean to me? Well, this is, you know, we're going to get to that, but I think it's important to start here because obviously, you know, New York City is a great example of, you know, it's such a ripe community that needs uh, for need a need for more affordable housing. And um, HUD has defined affordability as housing costs that consume less than a third of a family's total household income. And I know that 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 Urban Institute, going back to that, that Urban Institute report uh, Mm -hmm. suggests that it's really far out of reach. So as we move on, we're going to take a break here, but I want to ask DW a little bit more about that um, as we go to break. And then the other thing, you know, for those of you who are listening, you know, obviously a majority of our audience is not living uh, in New York City. Some of you may be, um, but we want to talk about how this blueprint, if we can get it right, or this 
this policy, if we can get it right, could be a blueprint for other areas throughout our country that face an affordable housing shortage. Um, we're going to also talk about the bigger picture, um, you know, stagnant wages. Uh, how is that affecting this whole picture? Because obviously, you know, the two are tied together. You can't can't have one without the other. That's that's one of the reasons we're having this problem. And finally, um, we're going to talk about, you know, the lack of coverage that this huge problem has been getting. And I commend DW for writing this piece because it's so important and obviously it affects so many people's lives. So if you have any thoughts on this, you're more than welcome to uh, give us a shout if you want to talk about where you live um, and how affording the houseable, uh, excuse me, affordable the housing is there. Um, you're more than welcome to join us or any comments on this uh, subject matter. Uh, the number to do so is 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. And again, I'm joined by D.W. Gibson, who is a contributor to The Nation. You are more than welcome to uh, check him out on Twitter. His handle is at DW underscore Gibson. That's at DW underscore Gibson. And you can find his work at thenation.com. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall just for one more segment and then uh, you will hear Leslie after uh, we get back following this segment. I am joined uh, by D.W. who is with TheNation.com uh, You can find his work at TheNation.com. We're discussing uh, his piece which um, I mentioned America the Unaffordable um, So going back to uh, what we were talking about which you know kind of talking about the bigger picture if New York City can get this right and even you know regardless of what happens they're having this as a bigger policy throughout the united states um you know obviously you have different uh areas that have different rules and different communities but i think having this this mandatory uh policy where if a developer builds um they have to include some you know affordable housing that idea in general i think could really help i mean what are your thoughts on that having covered this so extensively yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's a very good approach, um, and I think it's important to keep it uh, as localized as possible. Uh, certainly, this isn't something that should be coming down from the federal government or anything like this. This should be coming from the communities that are going to be affected. Um, I think oftentimes when change comes to a neighborhood through gentrification, you know, through a tidal wave of money, uh, often the people that are new to the neighborhood come at it with all these ideas and uh, sort of visions for how it can be remade without really consulting and listening to the people who have kept uh, the neighborhood, uh, which has often been neglected and uh, underserved, uh, kept that place going. So I think uh, it's really important to involve all the stakeholders and the people that have been in communities that have been underserved for so long. You mentioned in your piece, you know, stagnant wages, which obviously you can't avoid that when you're talking about the problem of affordable housing, because obviously... If people, you know, make more money, then they can afford more more housing um, or better housing. So, I mean, as you've researched this piece, I'm sure that you keep, you know, it keeps running up against this. The same thing with the mayor and what he's trying to do. Obviously, you know, if you have, for instance, you know, a $15 minimum wage, then this could become a whole different conversation. Absolutely. That's a really, really important point, I think. Perhaps the point 
because I don't think that there's any kind of strong argument. I mean, I, I, I view housing as a human right. I think we should all have a roof over our heads. But I understand that we're living in a capitalist society, and I understand that capitalism is driving so much of our lives. And I, I, I understand that housing, uh, like all cost-of-living issues, are, are going to be going up uh, year after year. That's just how the system works. The problem is this one part of the system isn't working, and that's called increase in wages. Uh, so I don't think it's unreasonable that rents are, 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 are higher in New York City this year than they were last year. Um, I think the fundamental problem is we're not putting enough money in the pockets of people who are working 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 hours a week at two or three jobs uh, at or near minimum wage. What we're essentially saying to those people is, uh, you know, you've working your tail off all week, but you don't have a right to housing. And I think that that's the, the fundamental problem here. Yeah, I mean, you have, it's just basic math. Obviously, the, the housing prices go up, you're going to be pulling that money from somewhere. And if there's, you're already, you know, failing to make two ends meet or very close at it, then you're not going to have anywhere to live. And then you see, you know, a lot of people complaining about, you know, problems with homelessness, not, you know, and, and there's always this, um, you know, I think a lot of people demonize homeless as, oh, you're too lazy, you don't want to work. But you have people who are working who are losing their homes. Um, you mentioned uh, the show uh, Shameless, um, which, you know, talk it's on Showtime, talks about um, Chicago and, you know, this different storyline developing that people, I, I don't want to give too much away, should read your piece, America the Unaffordable. But, you know, that's a perfect example of what happens yeah. to families and how you're seeing it more. You brought up how you're seeing it more in American culture, um, how this problem is becoming more um, in the mainstream and people are talking about it because, unfortunately, um, it's so widespread. And obviously, if we're seeing these studies that say there's zero, zero counties in the United States um, that has enough housing to meet its its uh, poor the needs of its poor Americans, um, you know, our, our arts and, you know, all the different ways that we consume media, we're going to be seeing this more. So hopefully um, people in America will um, start to understand how widespread of a problem it is. I mean, that's that's my hope. I'm sure it's yours as well. Absolutely, it is. And I think it's worth underscoring, too, that, uh, you know, there is a lot of housing in this country that is vacant and available, but it's in foreclosure or it's owned by someone who owns six places. Uh, you know, so it's not it, to some extent it is about new construction, but we shouldn't get caught up on that. It's about rethinking uh, housing, rethinking it as a right and and uh, finding ways that we can finding resources that already exist uh, to put people in housing. And, you know, this was something that I was thinking of that there's so many things lately that I've been reading about that, you know, important issues that um, the news media, unfortunately, uh, instead of covering, giving enough coverage to important stories like this, are talking about, you know, Donald Trump's latest tweet or, you know, who did he, you know, what racist did he align himself with this week? And it just, it just, it just stuck out to me that like, wow, if this got, you know, this should be getting so much more coverage compared to something that ridiculous, but it's not. And, and I get frustrated, you know, just reading stuff like this. I can't imagine someone like yourself who's immersed in the problems and you see this stuff every day and then you look to the news media uh, and see the coverage. It's got to be maddening sometimes. Yeah, the fundamental issue there is, you know, we get so caught up in national politics, presidential politics, and I, my my perspective there is that's really just celebrity-based. Even before Trump, I mean, when it was 2008 and Hillary and Barack, I mean, this was all very celebrity-based, our sort of cult of personality. I, I, I challenge anyone who's so very caught up in this election cycle, and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and the whole bit, I challenge 
everyone to think or to, to consider whether or not they know who their state representatives are, or who their uh, federal representatives are, the people that are at their city council level and the state level who have so much more impact on their daily lives. I, I would hope that we could maybe learn more about the people that are affecting our daily lives in a much more direct way uh, than the sort of celebrity of, of presidential politics. DW, I think that's uh, well said, and I think that's a great spot for us to end. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you. If you'd like to uh, read more of D.W. Gibson's work, he's a contributor to The Nation. You can go to thenation.com. Um, you should follow him on Twitter. You can do so. His handle is at D.W. underscore Gibson. This has been Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. You will hear uh, from Leslie right after this commercial break. Thank you for joining us uh, this hour, and we'll be right back after this. 